This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146 Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association. Respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello, I hope your week has gone extremely well and you're ready for another attack on the self-centered mind. Just to recap, we're looking at Lama Tsongkhapa's text, The Three Principal Aspects of the Path, and I'm taking a rather long way around the verse, However, if your determination to be free is not sustained by the pure altruistic intention, it does not become the cause for the perfect bliss of unsurpassed enlightenment. Therefore, the intelligent generate the supreme thought of enlightenment. Bodhicitta, which is also described as the pure altruistic intention, and the supreme thought of enlightenment, and how to develop it, is therefore our main point of discussion in these programs. We've been going through the method called equalizing and exchanging self for others, which is nine points to equalize and four to exchange self for others. The four points are seeing the disadvantages of self-cherishing, seeing the advantages of cherishing others, exchanging self for others, and taking and giving and we've spent the last few programs on the first, seeing the disadvantages of self-cherishing. Last week, we ended with a study of the role of self-centeredness in depression in children from well-off homes in the United States. Out of all the socio-economic groups, the kids from this one proved to have the biggest number of depressed individuals. Today I want to quote at length from a blog on a similar theme from therapist, author, and Executive Director of the Denver Family Institute, William Hambleton Bishop. An article entitled, Is Depression the Result of Self-Centeredness?, appears on the blog and addresses depression in terms of national and personal values, which I think is pretty relevant to our discussion, don't you? Anyway, before we get into it, let's set our motivation for the program today, as usual using Bodhicitta as our role model. The common aspiration in the Tibetan tradition is, may I attain enlightenment for the benefit of all sentient beings, meaning, may I achieve enlightenment so I can help all others reach both temporal and ultimate happiness in the best way possible. As I've said before, the importance of such a motivation lies in the vast scope of its object, all sentient beings, and we can see this is in direct opposition to the self-centered aspiration that just focuses on one's own happiness. From a Buddhist point of view, aspirations for communal well-being and happiness are self-healing and lead to personal well-being and happiness. And William Bishop has something to say about this as well. So now let's take a minute to think about our motivation and set it appropriately. Thank you. The blog on which the article appears is called Thoughts from a Therapist and you can visit it at www.thoughtsfromatherapist.com. The therapist, William Bishop, 
starts off with the question, why are there so many people in the United States who are depressed? He is referring to the 14.0 million adults over the age of 18 per year who have a major depressive disorder and the 3.3 million who have a persistent depressive order, that is, who have a depressive condition that lasts at least two years. These stats come from the Anxiety and Depression Association of America website www.adaa.org. Bishop says, Of course, there are hundreds of legitimate answers to this question, and my intention is not to find a one-size-fits-all conclusion. In this post, I'll be laying out a hypothesis for how the U.S.'s value of freedom and individualism may be affecting our national depression rates. I started pondering this subject after observing that for some people, having children and or joining into a committed relationship seems to make certain people more depressed. For others, it has the opposite effect. Why? If your values are oriented around self-centeredness, then relationships and children are actually a hindrance to living in congruence with the self-centered value. It's harder to live a self-centered life when you have a partner or children. In such a situation, you have more time available for collective pursuits and less time available for individual pursuits. If you value yourself more than your relationships to others, then the responsibilities of a relationship become kindling which stoke the fire of your depression. Additionally, the hypothesis stems from the consistent answers to the following two questions as portrayed in the media. In other words, when you're watching or a movie or a TV show, the protagonists generally have similar implied answers to the following questions. When you are happy, how are you spending your time, energy and money? The protagonist is generally happy when he gets what he wants, achieves ultimate control, proves he's objectively right, relieves himself from the burdens of compromise, obtains objects or alliances which promote his superiority, and wins. What do you want more of in your life to make you happier? The protagonist generally would be happier if he had ultimate control over the environment, obtained more personal wealth, had more time to engage in behaviors that suit only his needs, had the ability to make decisions that only took his interests into account, and gained philosophical allegiance and validation from the majority. Now Bishop goes on to ask how you would answer these questions, honestly, not how your religion or social circle would urge you to answer them, but how you yourself honestly would answer them. Bishop says that often people will answer according to the perception of how they ought to do so, but will then act differently. Let me ask another somewhat eerie question, he writes. In relation to political elections, could you often substitute politician with protagonist and still have the same answers? Does that answer have anything to do with depression in this country? Just to make it clear what he's proposing, let's do just that. The first question is, when you are happy, how are you spending your time, energy and money? And the answer, with politician swap pro protagonist, goes... The politician is generally happy when he gets what he wants, achieves ultimate control, proves he or she is objectively right, relieves him or herself from the burdens of compromise, obtains objects or alliances which promote his or her superiority, and wins. And the answer to the second question, what do you want more of in your life to make you happier, treated in the same way goes, 
The politician generally would be happier if he or she had ultimate control over the environment, obtained more personal wealth, had more time to engage in behaviors that suit only his or her needs, had the ability to make decisions that only took her or his interests into account, and gained philosophical allegiance and validation from the majority. Then Bishop asks a third question. What is the point of all this? The point is, he says, that it may be possible that we have unconsciously chosen a way of life in which selfishness or self-centeredness is that highest ideal or value. He says that Americans use the euphemisms independent and free to help them avoid admitting to the disadvantages of selfishness. He continues, Often our subjective purpose in life is to live in a way in which we are true or congruent with our value systems. This poses a problem if your value is selfishness, as the goals related to selfishness, that is, getting what you want, achieving ultimate control, including over the environment, proving you are objectively right, relieving yourself from the burdens of compromise, obtaining objects or alliances which promote your superiority, and winning, as well as obtaining more personal wealth, having more time for behaviors that suit only your needs, being able to take decisions that only took your interests into account, and gaining philosophical allegiance and validation from the majority, are all both relatively unattainable and will likely create moral and social discord. He then lists five points that could explain why a lifestyle based on these values could lead to depression. Not being able to fulfill your purpose creates an existential anxiety and apathy resulting from feeling that life is meaningless or hopeless. This can be depression, depressing. Living a life in which we put more emphasis on the self than on relationships will lead to feelings of detachment and loneliness. This can be depressing. Living a life in which actions done for others has minimal importance means that most of our time is spent doing something which we do not really value. This can be depressing. Perhaps there is an innate knowledge that we have a choice to align our values with a greater good or with self-centeredness, and not being able to choose the value which feels more authentically profound may lead us to believe that we are helpless in directing our own lives. This can be depressing. And finally, living a life in which selfishness is your highest value may lead to an internal conflict or dissonance as your self-assessment of your worth may feel morally immature. This can be depressing. He then goes on to propose a solution, though it is one that would be controversial to many psychotherapists. The solution, he says, would be to allow people a safe place to reflect upon and to change their value system. Do you believe this is even possible, he asks? Do we choose our values? Are there values that are more in the best interest of the collective? In a country that values rugged individualism, such a suggestion will often be met with aggression, and so I move forward cautiously. If values are chosen and not fixed, we are then forced to deal with the reality that our egos lack permanence. Egos will fight this till their death. Perhaps, he says, systemic theory is not simply a theory, but an orientation. Now, just by way of explanation, the website goodtherapy.org states, The goal of systems theory in therapy is for a group to gain insight into each member's role as it relates to the healthy functionality of the whole. The technique used by this theory 
relies on identifying specific behavior patterns and how each member responds to anxiety within the dynamic. By doing this, the individual participants can begin to understand and transform their patterns to more adaptive, productive behaviors. Bishop claims that our planet seems to have a systemic orientation in which life moves towards homeostasis or balance. He writes, I will let you all come to some conclusion on your own by allowing you the space to reflect upon what changes you would experience in your own life if you made the following subtle changes to your operating value system. I want good for me to we want good for all. I want greater security and safety for me to we want greater security and safety for all. I want greater happiness for me to we want greater happiness for all. He says that an additional value to come out of this change would be humility, to honestly accept our own limitations and thresholds so that we do not burn ourselves out and thereby further burden the system. If our values are focused on the system, he writes, they are also focused on the prosperity of the self, as we are all part of the system. With humility and collective focus, we can understand that our place is to offer what we can and not more. Burning oneself out in efforts towards a value is detrimental to the entire system, as the system now has to accommodate a relatively broken part. And if we do what we can, and not more, with, op- with actions that operate towards collective good, collective success, collective wellness, collective safety, etc., then we're giving ourselves more opportunities to experience three things. First, fulfillment from accomplishing a self-defined purpose at any time that we contribute to the collective, as opposed to only feeling fulfillment when we contribute to our own advancement. Security through the promotion of a healthy system, as opposed to endless efforts aimed at protecting ourselves from an environment we claim to be separate from, and a sense of moral authenticity which is unburdened by pride, as we would be focused on a greater good and not on perpetuating the vain assertion that our subjective good is most noble. Which is all great. But he acknowledges that the ego has become very clever at subverting and outsmarting what he calls the collective empathetic knowledge. He writes, The ego has a long history of claiming to hold universal good. It uses this claim as a tool to oppress and dominate the collective while covertly accomplishing congruence with the value of self-centeredness. In other words, promoting that we all follow a collective good is a method that the ego uses to trick us into unconsciously and unintentionally acting selfishly. And this selfishness unfortunately usually causes us to oppress and judge people our ego's label is different. That is William Hamilton Bishop. Of course, it is the purpose of the equalizing and exchanging self for others meditation to make it much more difficult to judge others as different. When we remember that we all want the same thing, happiness, and we all similarly don't want suffering, it becomes easier to align ourselves with the joy and pain of others. And as soon as we do that, it becomes much more difficult for the egotistic mind to subvert intentions for the collective good. In the meditation chapter of his text, A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, Shantideva has these verses. The suffering that I experience does not cause any harm to others, but that suffering is mine 
because of my conceiving my, of myself as I, thereby it becomes unbearable. Likewise, the misery of others does not perform me. Nevertheless, by conceiving of others as I, their suffering becomes mine. Therefore, it too should be hard to bear. Hence, I should dispel the misery of others because it is suffering just like my own, and I should benefit others because they are sentient beings just like myself. Shantideva says that the very reason we suffer is because we have an innate grasping at an inherently independently existing I that effectively separates us from others, that you may call this the ego. We carve reality into separate bits, and if I am completely separate from you, then I, of course, see my suffering and your suffering as quite different. My suffering is mine only and yours is yours only. You don't suffer when I feel pain, and I don't suffer when you feel pain. However, Shantideva points out that when we change the meaning of I from a conception of me to a conception of others, their suffering becomes mine, and then becomes as difficult to bear as my own. How can this be done? Well, if you do have an inherent and independent I, then it would be difficult, because we would all be different entities, and we would have no basis for interpreting I to refer to others. However, from a Buddhist point of view, that independent inherently I is an illusion. It doesn't actually exist in reality. You can get an idea of this if you try to find it. Imagine that somebody has criticized you unfairly or accused you of some nasty act that you didn't do. In such a situation, a strong sense of I arises, such as, I didn't do that. How dare you accuse me of it? Now look at this I and try to find out how it exists. Of course, it feels very solid and strong, but when we try to discover its actual nature, that's very difficult to find. It is not the body or any of the body parts, nor is it the consciousness or any of the mental activities. In Buddhist terms, it is not any of the five aggregates, that is form, feelings, perceptions, compositional factors or consciousness that makes us up. Nor is it a combination of the aggregates nor something different from them. And that covers every way it could exist. When we look for this I, it appears very elusive. Even though we don't, when we don't look, it appears so solid and strong. Just let me repeat. It is not any of the five aggregates, nor is it a combination of the aggregates, nor is it something different from the aggregates. And again, that covers every way it could exist. That leaves us with the only possibility that it doesn't really exist at all. It's just a mental fabrication. Now, if that's so, then how do we really exist? The Tibetans teach four main schools of Buddhist thought and say that the Prasangika Madhyamika school is the highest and explains what the Buddha actually meant. That school says we are all just a collection of causes, conditions and parts with the label I and nothing more than that. A fetus starts out as a mixture of the father and mother's substances into which consciousness descends and then grows due to the right conditions of enough nutrition, moisture and warmth and so on within the mother. Once born, the child continues to exist and grow if auspicious conditions such as food, drink, shelter, caring and so on are still there. If they aren't, the baby will die. 
So a normal person is an organism dependent on all those conditions and containing all the parts, that's the head and the arms and the hands and the legs and the torso and so on, in the right place and in proportion. And amongst all that, there is no independent, inherently existing entity or thing that we can point to as the I. The I is just the label that the mind applies to the base, which is the organism we've just described. Now, if the label does not apply to an independent and inherently existing object, but just to a collection of causes, conditions and parts, it becomes easier for us to reassign the eye to others, or to see that their eye is just the same as my eye. I can recognize that they are just like me, with the same wish for happiness and the same dislike of suffering. Pema Chodron, in her commentary on Shantideva's text, describes it like this. The cause of our suffering is our concept of ourselves as a separate continuous self. Whatever we cling to as me and mine, our body, our spouse, emotions, possessions or friends, causes us to suffer. The intensity of our pain, according to the Buddha and Shantideva, is dependent on the intensity of our clinging to an impermanent, ungraspable I. If this is true, she says, how can we go beyond the central reference point of self? We do it simply and directly by recognizing that other people are just like me. This practice reveals that we all have the same fear of suffering and same desire for happiness. This realization frees up the kindness of our heart. Maybe we feel that our own suffering is already more than we can bear. Maybe this is why we don't want to relate to someone else's pain. When we understand that their suffering is no different than ours, however, something shifts the fearful heart of ego begins to melt. On the Shambhala Sun website, the teacher Ara Glasser has written an article called The Hidden Treasure of the Heart, which uses the practices of aspiring, dissolving and equalizing to open wide the doors of our heart to others. She echoes Pema Chodron's little mantra, just like me, when she talks about equalizing. She writes, At the third level of equanimity, we begin to rock the foundations of our self-centeredness through the practice of equalizing self and others. We see beneath the surface to how we all want the same thing. Instead of holding ourselves apart from others, we realize how close to them we really are. We do this by acknowledging a simple human truth. Everyone, just like me, wishes to have happiness, and everyone, just like me, wishes to avoid suffering. Just like me, everyone wants to be loved, to be safe and healthy, to be comfortable, and at ease. And just like me, no one wants to feel afraid or inadequate. No one wants to be sick, lonely or depressed. Differences in religion, values, race or social status create illusions of separateness and distance. Equalizing practice is a way of cutting through the surface of things and realizing that whatever differences there are between people, at the core we are kindred spirits seeking the same thing. We often look at, out at our troubled, messed-up world and wonder why people act in such destructive and hurtful ways. But if we think about it, it's really not such a mystery. Their motivations are the same as ours. Their deepest fears and longings are the same as ours. They want comfort, ease and security. They don't want discomfort, anxiety and pain. In this fundamental way, we are intimately connected with everyone else on the planet. 
This is why, when the Dalai Lama says he feels a closeness with everyone he meets, we sense he means it. Through the practice of equalizing, we see beyond the differences that divide us to the common humanity that unites us. We acknowledge our shared humanity and feel our heart break open when we see how, in seeking our peace and comfort, we so often sow the seeds of our misery. The equality practice can be done while sitting on your meditation cushion and contemplating people you know, person by person. You can begin with friends, move on to strangers, and gradually include enemies. Imagining each person, you think, just like me, this person wants happiness and doesn't want suffering. Just like me, this person doesn't want stress and illness and misery. Just like me, this person wants comfort and safety and ease. When this person has a headache, she wants to be free of it. When he hurts, he wants relief. Really allow yourself to be touched by the awareness that each one of these people is just like you in these wishes. The more personal we can make it, the more powerfully it will move our heart. Practicing this way, even for a few minutes a day, can really make a difference in our lives. This practice also works well in our daily life. Instead of going through our day caught up in our own world, we can take a few minutes or a few hours to focus on the practice of equalizing. It's so simple and direct, and yet it's a real eye-opener to consider others in this way. When you meet another person, you think, just like me, she wants to be happy. She doesn't want to suffer. Just like me, this cashier, who's looking tired, wants happiness and doesn't want suffering. Just like me, this parking attendant, who seems impatient, wants happiness and doesn't want suffering. Just like me, all the people standing in this long line, getting restless, want happiness and don't want suffering. When we do this practice, we encounter our habit of thinking we are the center of the universe and that our pain, our fears, our dreams, our yearnings are somehow different and more important than everyone else's. It can be quite shocking and humbling to realize just how alike we all are. The more we cultivate this practice of equalizing, the more difficult it becomes to draw a solid line between us, the good, and them, the bad. And it's not so easy to justify hurting or neglecting others. The Buddha said, See yourself in others. Then who can you hurt? What harm can you do? Seeing ourselves in others keeps us connected to genuine empathy and grounds us in a deeply embodied ethic. When we see ourselves in others, we don't hurt them because we know how it feels to be in pain and we help for the same reason. Over months and years, as we practice equalizing ourselves with others, we gradually open to this understanding until ultimately we can no longer close our heart to anyone. Loving others then becomes a natural expression of feeling our closeness with them and our likeness to them. And with that, we complete equalizing self and others and have also run out of time. 
Next time, we will start looking at, at exchanging self for others, the next step in this development of bodhicitta. But now, as you leave, please remember what we've talked about today and dedicate any positive potential we've developed from this program to the enlightenment of all beings. I hope you'll be with us again next week. Thank you and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.